When I was 10 years old, I dreamed of being a professional baseball player. In fact, I dreamed of being the shortstop for the Chicago Cubs. Now, my hero at the time was a guy named Ernie Banks. He was a great shortstop. He was the most valuable player two years in a row for a last place team. And I mean, that was unheard of in baseball. And there was nothing in my life that would suggest that replacing Ernie Banks would be a logical aspiration for, my, for myself. I was, I was fairly strong for my size. I was wiry and I, I hustled, but my size was limiting. I was short and I was skinny. I grew up in the inner city of Chicago. There was no organized sports activities to speak of in, those, in that area. And uh, I didn't play organized baseball. I just played sandlot kind of stuff at, at the park. And um, as it turned out, um, I'm a pastor, not a shortstop. There was nothing Ernie had to worry about, it, a dream that did not come true, but it was only baseball. When I was 19, I was a student here, and I dreamed of being married to Patty Sexton. Now, in my dreams, I was teaching here. And at the end of the day, I would walk home from the classroom, and I would go to the house, come into the back door, and she would meet me at the back door. She was wearing a dress and an apron over it, and she had potholders, and she was holding something that she had cooked for supper. This was the dream, all right? Now, here's what's a little bit ridiculous about the dream. Uh, Patty and I had never gone out on a date. It's not that I hadn't tried. I'd asked her out and she'd said no, and I asked her out again and she said no. In fact, she was in the middle of a long stream of telling me no, that she didn't want to go out with me. But I had this dream of being married to her and her cooking. And uh, as it turned out, we hung out one day and we started dating and we fell in love and eventually we got married. And uh, we did have conversations about cooking and it turns out she didn't. Uh, she didn't know how at least and we learned together. And uh, she's become a very good cook, but we share cooking duties in our kitchen duties in our house. She cooks, I cook, whoever is available does it. And uh, it was a dream that didn't work out as far as Patty meeting me at the door with an apron on. I don't believe she owns an apron. I have not seen one in years. I have one, but she does not. And uh, I will tell you, our marriage has worked out far more than I asked or imagined or ever dreamed of. It's been a great ride for 40-some years together. Let me ask you this question. What are you dreaming of? Now, I'm not asking whether you dream about being a professional baseball player. Now, I'm not asking if you dream about some scholarship coming through that gives you four years of tuition so you can graduate debt-free, although that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? not asking about profession. I'm not asking about relationships. Maybe I could morph the question just a little bit. What do you dream for yourself spiritually? What do you think you could be for God? Some of you could answer that. Some of you maybe say, I don't dream about that at all. Do you dream about a, being on a path of continued spiritual growth or are you dreaming about just settling for less and hanging out wherever you are right now spiritually? It's not an idle question. 
I've been talking to the students the last few weeks, and, and one of the phrases that keeps coming up again and again and again and again is a two-word phrase about spiritual complacency. Complacency is a huge risk at a school like Iwu. This is really a pretty cool place spiritually if we want it to be filled with opportunity. We do chapel every Monday, every Wednesday, and every Friday. We have professors who regularly integrate faith into their curriculums. They, I see professors all the time in the commons or at Macon sitting and having faith conversations with you guys. Uh, your, your RDs care about faith. Your RAs care about faith. Your hall chaplains care about faith. We live in a bubble. Now, I don't say that negatively. All college students who live in a residential campus somewhere live in a bubble. I was talking with a Purdue student not too many months ago, and he talked about living in the Purdue bubble. So Purdue has a bubble. Iwu has a bubble. Ours is just a little bit more spiritually focused and a little more behaviorally contained. <laughs> but in a bubble like ours, I will tell you, it's easy to grow spiritually complacent. It's easy to let the environment do the work for you. It's easy to grow stale because we're surrounded by opportunity. It's not that everybody is like that. Some of us really get it spiritually and are eager spiritually and are always looking to see how we can grow. We get it. Life isn't like that for all of us. It wasn't like that when I was a college student. Like many of you, I grew up in a Christian home. In fact, I grew up in kind of a Christian all-star home. My dad was a pastor. I'm a fifth-generation clergyman. And, uh, my, you know, my dad, my grandfather, his father, his father before him. And, uh, you know, our, in our home, it was a great home. I know some people have, have tell stories about, you know, how dad was one thing at, ch at church and another thing at home. My dad was consistent through and through. He was that guy. He, he always lived at home when he preached at church. I had a great family. We did devotions around the kitchen table every day. We memorized scripture together. I remember praying to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I think I was four years old the first time I recognized how sinful I was. At four. But I recognized it, and I prayed to ask the Lord into my life. I probably did that again at five and six and seven and eight. It's a great thing about being a children's pastor is you can have an invitation every single week and the same kid gets saved. But I remember going to the altar at different times because I'd messed up again. And I remember watching other people who got it spiritually. And I remember not feeling that that was the reality in my life. That nothing really clicked. It felt like I was in a prison of never getting it. And I wondered if I ever would get it. I tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed again and again and again until I began to wonder, maybe, maybe this spirituality isn't for me. My dreams didn't draw me forward and I just settled and I, I began to think, I can't expect more because disappointment's too hard to live with. Can any of you identify with that at all? Where we just sometimes feel stuck. I'd like to invite you to try something with me today. Wherever you are, whether you're in the wings, whether you're down front, whether you're in the back, wherever you are sitting here today, I'd like you to lean in a little bit. I want you to consider the possibility that God has a dream for you. And that it's more than you think it is. I have a deep and firm conviction. 
I believe it for me. I believe it for you. I've watched it come true for people for years. And here's my conviction. Wherever you are with God, there's more for you. Wherever you are, if you're passionate about following Jesus, there's more for you. You haven't arrived yet. If you don't care about following Christ at all, there's more for you. God has dreams for you. He has plans for you. Maybe you've never considered the issue of faith, or maybe you have and backed away from it. But wherever you are with God, whatever you are in your journey, there's more, <coughs> there's more for you. This is not just an opinion based on hope and aspiration. It's based on scriptural teaching. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about our possibilities and about God's work in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is is at work within us. That's the possibility for you that I'm talking about. As you explore the context of this verse, Paul is not talking about wealth. He's not talking about living in the fancy house. He's not talking about driving the fancy car the more and more and more. The context of this passage is all a spiritual reality. Now to him, God, who is able to do more, not just a little bit more, but immeasurably more than you ask or imagine, according to his power, not your power, that's at work within us, on the inside of us, the spiritual part of our lives. Wherever you are with God, the Bible promises there's more for you. So here's the question, how do we experience that? How do we get there? How do those of us who have been in the practice of leaning in get more? How do those of us who tried and tried and it not clicked in our lives, how does more come to us? Do we pray for God to bop us on the head with some kind of spiritual magic wand? You know, just going around, doink, doink, doink. You know, and some of us say, I wish he would do that. I've been waiting for that and it hasn't happened in my life. Do we pray for God's grace to simply flip a switch in our lives and suddenly those of us who haven't been getting it begin to get it? Do we just wait and wait and then wait for something to happen and then blame God when it does not? Or do we just work harder? I tell you, God's not opposed to work. He really isn't. The Bible tells us to make every effort to add things to our faith. We can't earn it, but we can give ourselves to it. But working is about your power. And your power is proven not to be enough. So what's left? I want to take you back in time today to around 900 B.C., 900 years before the time of Christ. There was a prophet, Elisha. Elijah was first, and then Elisha succeeded him. And um, one day he has an encounter with a woman. This is what it says in 2 Kings chapter 4. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. And Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she says. Well, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside after you've collected these jars and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour oil into the jars from that little bottle you have. And as each is filled, put it to one side. And she left him and shut the door behind her and kept her 
behind her and her sons, and they brought jars to her, and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Now I want to break down this story a little bit, this scripture, and see if there's any lessons we might learn. The, the reality of this rescue for this woman is that it started with a sense of urgency. There's a woman. Her husband has been part of a group of men who devoted themselves to service of the prophet Elisha. We don't know exactly what they, what they did. The Hebrew term in history is a little murky. We're not sure. But somehow they were involved in serving the prophet. And then the guy dies, and the woman is in trouble because he's left her in debt, or she's accumulated debt after he's gone. Anyway, she is in debt, and in Hebrew practice, in their custom, if you couldn't pay the debt, if you had no option, one of the things you could do is to sell yourself into slavery for a period up to six years. That would satisfy the creditors. That would leave her sons without a parent, since dad is dead. So she's not going to do that. And then the creditor threatens to come and take her boys from her to satisfy the debt. Now, that wasn't exactly the way it was supposed to happen, but it was the practice that was going on. And she's distraught. I've lost my husband. Now I'm going to leave my boys. What am I doing? What will I do? She's desperate. She comes to God's prophet for help. He gives her some instructions. The question is, what does that have to do with us? Something that happened 900 years before Christ, how does that relate to us in 21 or 2019? I'm getting a little ahead of myself, apparently. Here's what. I think a sense of need is the beginning point of finding more with God. A sense of need. If we're honest, a lot of us are okay with just being okay when it comes to faith. We're okay with a lack of deep commitment. We're okay with a spiritual disconnect. Some of us have decided we're not opposed to spiritual things and we're it's fine for those who are passionate about it, but it's not a priority for us now. Complacency rules. We'll deal seriously with God at some other time. It's a lot of us. Will you, let me remind me of some, will you let me remind you of something? Earlier in the service, we sang, oh, praise the name, and it's easy to sing about the sacrifice of Christ. But I want to remind you that Jesus did not offer himself as a magnificent sacrifice on the cross, only to be content with a mediocre commitment from us. He didn't offer himself as a magnificent sacrifice to be content with mediocre commitment. And that would describe some of us. And I think a sense of urgency begins with honest evaluation. For each of us, there's a gap between where we are and where God wants us to be. God meets us where we are at our point of need, but he always calls us to more. I've shared with you before a prayer I'm about to show you again. It's from a guy named A.W. Tozer, one of the great spiritual leaders of the middle part of the 20th century. He was a pastor. He was a speaker. He was a writer. He was a theologian. He called for revival. He always called for more. This is what A.W. Tozer put as a prayer at the end of the first chapter of one of his great books called The Pursuit of God. He said, Oh God, I've tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. 
I'm painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. This is A.W. Tozer who prays that. You know, this is the guy that I would look at and go, he's got it all together spiritually. He's, he's deep. He's, he's strong. He's passionate. He's, he's set. And Tozer says, I'm ashamed of my desire. I, I thirst, but I thirst to be more thirsty still. There's something in him that wants more. A godly man who realizes he needs more. And some of us can pray that prayer with integrity, saying, Lord, I'm seeking you, I'm seeking you, I'm seeking you, but I need more. I'm thirsty for you, but I want to be thirsty. I want to crave you more. I want passion to rise in my life until it becomes the dominant thing in my life. You're already leaning towards God. You just need more. But some of us would have a harder time praying that prayer with honesty. Some of us would have a harder time saying, I really thirst. I just want to be more thirsty because we're not that full of thirst for God at all. Some of us struggle about longing for more of God because we're content with less. And if that describes you, and I know it describes some of you, here's a prayer I'd suggest for you. Oh God, make me sick of my mediocrity. I'd suggest that to be a great prayer to pray today and tomorrow the next day, the next day, the day after that, as long as it takes until you begin to have that sense within you that you just can't stand being what you are anymore. Coming to grips with our need is the beginning place of experiencing the more God has for you. Oh God, make me sick of mediocrity. Help me to be hungry for more. Now let's go back to the story. There's a second thing that we can copy in this story. And that is that there's an obedience that connects to expectation. And expectation and obedience have something to do with each other. The prophet asks the woman what she has. She says, I have a little bottle of oil. And then he tells her, well, go to your neighbors and um, collect as many bottles, empty bottles as you possibly can. And, and, and then when you come back, fill those bottles with, that little bit of oil you had, which must have seemed ridiculous to her, but she went out and, and began to do it. And I'm wondering if anyone would, would help me. Does anybody have a bottle that I could borrow? Two, you have one too. Thank you. How about some, anybody else? Any more? Can I, I could, yeah. <laughs> Great. I'll take it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, there are a couple, two of them, excellent.
At what point does she begin to feel foolish? Just one more. <laughs> My goodness. You can't sit in class a whole period, can you? My mind is boggled with this one. So you're this lady, and you go to your neighbor and say, do you have a bottle I can borrow, an empty bottle? And they say, sure. And then she goes and asks for another one and says, sure. And she says, do you have a couple I could borrow? And she collects as many as she can. What are, I, I, at some point, she starts to feel foolish, maybe, but she's desperate. I think at some point her neighbors begin to wonder about her. Has Miriam gone off a rocker? Has the financial pressure crushed her too much? At some point she has as many as she believes God will fill. She goes inside. She closes the door. She takes her own little bottle of oil. And she begins to pour. And lo and behold, that bottle fills up. And then the next one does, and then the next one does, and then the next one does. Her expectations, her expectations help shape her experience. When she's, all the bottles are filled, the oil stops. I think there's some truth for us there. There's a connection between what we expect and what we receive. The Bible tells us that our spiritual potential is unlimited but all too often, we put limits on our expectations. By the way, most of these bottles came from lost and found. And so after chapel, if you've been wondering, hey, where'd that go? It'd be good to come and get them. Now, a couple of you were so involved in the story that you just gave me the bottle you brought to chapel today. If, you, if that's you, come and get that one too. And don't take one if it's not yours. You know, this monster one. It's not yours, it's hers. In our lives, there's some things we don't expect. Some of us don't expect that God can help us with that stubborn sin that we've just not been able to overcome. Some of us don't think we can ever get over the, help, over the hump spiritually. Some of us are okay with laziness and we don't know that we'll ever not be lazy spiritually. We don't open his word with expectation. We just sometimes read it when we, because we have to or we don't read it at all. We come to chapel or go to church on the weekend and we don't lean in expecting to hear something from the Lord that will nudge us. We prefer comfort so we resist anything that pushes us, that expects more out of us. In some ways that's worship of ourselves because our comfort becomes more important than God's possibilities. I'm not throwing shade at you. I'm really not. But I'm aware of the reality because I lived there once. Here's a prayer I'd suggest. Oh God, I'm ready for more. 
and I'll do whatever I need to do. Now let me tell you, there's some of you who could pray that first part of it. I'm ready for more, but you'd be hesitant about the second part because you're afraid of what that anything might be. What if God asks this and what if God asks that? Here's the last one point I want to bring out of this passage of Scripture we just read. In this story, we see a generous God who wants to fill this woman's need to the extent of the need and beyond. And that's what is true of us as well. He fills this woman's life with abundance in response to her obedience. And he'll do abundantly more than you ask or even imagine according to his power that is at work within us. All glory to Christ and God in the church forever. His part is the abundance. Your part is to open yourself to his fullness. Will you do that? Would you pray, Lord, make me sick of my mediocrity. I'm ready for more. Here's my life. Would you fill it? Father, earlier in this church, during this service, we prayed, I know a breakthrough is coming. By faith, I see a miracle. And I really believe that for many of us, that breakthrough begins by acknowledging where we are and what we are not. And saying, Lord, I need to be more for you. I'm leaning in. We pray that in Jesus' name.